Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm so blessed and pleasured to have somebody I've been trying to get on this podcast now for the last two years. Our paths have crossed in multiple places around the world, and we came close actually recently in Israel, actually sitting down and having a discussion, and it didn't work out, but now we're sitting here in Nicaragua and in a beautiful house, in a beautiful cliff overlooking the ocean. I couldn't be more happy to have my friend Gaia on the show. Welcome, Gaia. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. You are the founder of the Tantric Way Process, among many other things that relate to spiritual community and finding finding yourself, finding your way maybe in the world. And I thought it'd be really nice to bring you on and talk a little bit about how you found your way and how you developed this whole sort of community, if you will. So maybe we can just start with a little bit of your background, your upbringing, like where did you start in this world? Where are you from? Hmm. I was raised in an American army family. So I traveled, I started traveling from six months old to international locations. I was kind of born into more of an international community, but very much an American community because I lived in and around American army bases. So I've kind of been an expat since birth in an interesting kind of way. Very interesting. Yeah. So you obviously, well, it could have gone two ways, I guess, because a lot of people who grew up with the army family either hate traveling and mm -hmm. want to just be stationary, but it sounds like you really took that and, yeah. and went with it and found yourself traveling a lot. It's interesting you say that because my little sister has been married for 25 years, has two kids, has lived in the same town her whole life. And I took the sort of other trajectory of um, putting on the backpack. My parents put a backpack on me when I was 10 years old to look around Europe a bit. And after uh, spending a lot of time going back to something that was a more American life, I put the backpack on again when I was about 27, 26 or 27 and started traveling around. But I actually went back to live a normal American life for a while through high school. I was in Salt Lake City, Utah, of all strange places. And I went to high school. I got out of school early. I got a big scholarship to a very reputable university. I studied economics, had a corporate job for a while. Um, and then sort of uh, decided I wanted to be free. Let's talk about that. Because this yeah. is a very pivotal moment. I mm -hmm. think uh, a lot of people's life who do choose to make a decision to design mm -hmm. their life a little differently. You went that normal path. You said you used the word normal, which is yeah. fine. And a lot of people go that mm -hmm. path and remain happy. Well, I was, I, even more than normal, I was very driven. It was the 1980s. It was right before the stock market crash. And I grew up in a very blue-collar kind of family that was just getting by and doing uh, lots of stuff to get by and make the best possible life for me that there could have been. But nonetheless, the, the pockets were, weren't very deep. And so I wanted to make money. I wanted to be an economist so I could be on Wall Street so I could make money because I wanted to, that's what I thought the idea of freedom was about. I thought that the money could buy me freedom. And so I was, you know, kind of living this corporate life. I was working 70 hours a day. I was making a really good wage in New York. 
um, for I was 19 when I got out of college. I didn't actually graduate, although I told people I did. Um, and yeah, I got the classic New York good gig that you get after college and was making all this money and I was working 70 hours a week and I'm a driven woman. That seemed to work for me for a while, but something in there was, there was something in me that was like, um, absolutely unfulfilled, depressed, staying up late nights, watching Tony Robbins infomercials for Christ's sakes, like, uh, just trying to figure out how was I gonna, what, what was wrong, you know? And, um, I remember actually, I didn't think I would share this. Um, I had this moment where I realized this quote I'd heard as a child, which was, you're either a happy pig or a miserable Socrates. And I was like, wow, I'm really tired of being a miserable Socrates. Maybe I should go be a happy pig. And that's when I got into drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And I was on a mission to kill as many brain cells as possible, actually, because I hadn't found meditation teachers. I hadn't found spiritual guides. But I had this understanding that my mind was creating a lot of my problems. And somewhere along this same time, I got introduced in the most synchronistic, strange way by going to a concert one night and um, picking up some guy in the concert. And he took me that night, after we went back to his place, he took me that night to a bar. And I went into this bar and it was full of people. You know, imagine me, this kind of corporate goody two-shoes. And this bar was full of people that were like with big breasts and tattoos and guitars. It was Hell's Angels. It was guitar players. It was famous musicians. It was this underbelly New York bar. And I started hanging out there just on the weekends, just like going to this place where I felt alive. It was about feeling alive. It wasn't right or wrong or dark or light. It was just like where, and I was drawn. And so I would go sober. Somehow I decided I needed to do this sober. I would go on a bunch of coffee and go to this bar every weekend. And three weeks later, I realized I'd come to know these people. And I realized many of the women in this club were strippers. And I started asking a lot of questions and they invited me to go audition. And I, I loved the idea. I had been an athlete and a gymnast and I had been given a kind of healthy view towards human sexuality as a child. And I, I loved to be naked and that was just always part of who I was. And so these women invited me to go audition at a strip club. And so I said, fuck it. Yeah, that sounds great. It sounds exciting. And so I went down to this place and I, they, it was with the whole Italian mafia scene, and they asked me what my name was, and I picked some random stage name. I became Veronica that night, and I got on this stage, and I, I took all my clothes off, and I danced around on the stage. And I was so happy. I loved the attention. I loved the glory of being able to be in my sexuality and be safe. And I loved the fact that during that same amount of time, I must have made 40 bucks in about 15 minutes. Cash, no taxes, you know? I was like, wait a minute, I'm busting my ass for 40 grand a year after taxes, which is not, you know. And so I, uh, I kept, I kept dancing on the weekends. You still had your corporate job. I still had my corporate job for a while. I was getting a bit dodgy. I was getting a bit involved in lots more alcohol and drugs, which had been part of the initial mission, uh-huh. right? To kill the mind. Okay. Because we didn't have meditation teachers back in 1991 in Manhattan very easily. They weren't on yoga platforms. were not on every corner, right? And I was wise enough to see that my mind had been the enemy, so I was going to kill that. 
So I was, uh, so I kept both jobs for about six months. And I remember one day throwing $5,000 in cash up in the air and rolling around in it on my bed, just being like, what the fuck? I'm doing what I love to do. This is so much fun. And I'm making money because I'm following my heart. And at this time I found, I'd been dating a man who was a guitar player. We found like some rock and roll boy. I was buying him guitars with all the money as you do when you're in that field. And, um, I remember I hadn't cried in 10 years. I had been so wrapped up in my need for success and my need to be an Olympic athlete, my need to be a successful businesswoman, all these like drives that I had. And I, I talked to this guy that night and I really wanted to quit my straight job, what I called my straight job. And I found in his support and in myself the strength to let go of the security and to go into the unknown because there's, as much as there might be a lot of cash available, you become an entrepreneur when you become a stripper. You're working not for someone else. You're working for yourself and then paying other people to contract space in their space to work. And it was about pulling that security plug. And so I cried. I cried tears of joy for giving up this thing that was not really, even though I'm a hardworking person who loves to be creative, there was something more joyful about this work that I was doing in this really wild world. Um, and in that world, I learned to become a psychologist and I learned to become an economist and I learned to be an entrepreneur in that world. So that was kind of my first cord that I pulled towards freedom. I mean, now I run a hippie commune, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a completely different transition that happened along the way. But mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, for me, that place where I just felt so afraid to let go of the security, that cutting that cord, even though it wasn't maybe the final point in the final destination, that was an absolutely key point for me in following a life that I would love, not a life that was set out for me by some social condition. Hmm. Wow. Well said. That was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to touch upon this idea of discovering the mind being the root of maybe your problems yeah. and suffering, if you will, and feeling that the drugs, the alcohol could maybe kill it and you could free yourself from it. And then finding yourself now in contrast to where you were at, where you found another path. Right. Can we talk about that? Yeah, and, sure. And how that evolved? Mm -hmm. So in response to your question, the first thing that comes to mind is I've heard it said in the more alternative spiritual communities that I travel in, that even the use of drugs is a search for God. Something in that detachment or that, um, that kind of leaving the body is and connecting with something more esoteric, more abstract is that that undoing I was going through was actually part of my search for God. It wasn't separate from it. And that tool of, I, sure, there are better tools or more conscious tools to use to quiet the mind, but quieting the mind is one of our most um, necessary steps if we're going to open up to whatever might be possible. And so... I wouldn't take back my years of numbing myself for anything. I think they were really necessary for me. And I'm really grateful that some five or six years down the road, I did find the first yoga class in New York and did start participating in other techniques for quieting the mind. I learned to meditate at the Integral, Integral Yoga Center in New York. And... um I picked up a tiny little pamphlet that was like 20 pages thick about transcendental meditation. And I started doing this by myself after my first yoga class. And I had this experience where 
I was catapulted through some fucking portal that was like a DMT trip or something looking back on it. And I actually got quite afraid of meditation. So somewhere along the line, I was on this, I, I was doing this thing where I was dancing and I was really enjoying this exploration. And yet there was, I always talk about strip clubs as being a place where you turn the volume up on everything. There's a shadow in there. That's the part you see on mainstream television and everything. It's like the darkness and the people doing it for all the wrong reasons and the sexual need and the greed involved. But there's also this really, really light quality to it, which is sexuality is seen as something very human and normal. Clients come in and they're looking for solace in the arms of a woman who will not judge them. And so I was I was in this place where the volume was turned up on everything. So that meant my shadow got a little bit out of control as well. And then I discovered this yoga and meditation. But for a long time, I danced back and forth. I would go into the belly of the beasts, we could call it. And I would go full on into all sorts of craziness. And then I would find myself up at some yoga ashram in upstate New York in a twin bed, getting up at 5 a.m. every morning, drinking tea and doing mantras all day. And then I'd kind of go back into the belly of the beast. And it was a sort of, it wasn't a really boom kind of transition for me. It was this segue. And I think that's that segue where they're both, both sides of that, that light side and that dark side, they're both a search for the divine. They're both a search for something greater. It's not that I would put one above the other. Can I just touch upon one thing? Give me one second. Yep. Make a mental note for me to tell you about Amachi and Velocity. Just make a note about that. Okay. Note. Um, the straddling I'd like to touch upon. Because okay. I think many of us straddle the true self with the ideal self as we go through life, hoping and wanting to be that ideal self, the star athlete, the... Mm-hmm. Okay. The the expert on Wall Street. Right. Yet there's that other part of us that strive to maybe be more fulfilled and find more mm-hmm. inner peace. And you were jumping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I'd like to maybe understand more of like the evolution. And then because you said there wasn't just a switch, there wasn't just a, a not snap in that finger. moment. There not were in another moment, moments, but like yeah. you grew into right. this sort of thing where then you maybe cast off the lines of. You, you talked about security. Yeah, that was you know? the key. That's a key thing is to cast off that fear. The fear. But yeah. then there's another casting way. You cast away a lot of American society. You, you shipped off. You left. Right. Well, that'll come soon. Okay. That'll come soon. So then let's okay. talk about Amici. And- okay. So this is about the kind of straddling. Uh, I'll tell you, there was, a, there was an interesting night in Manhattan when I was still dancing. And I had discovered... Um, Amachi, who's one of these um, divine gurus. gurus. She's the hugging guru, and she hugs everybody um, in her divine presence and sits in a chair for 12 hours. And there's another woman named, a lesser-known woman named Velocity Chiliad. Velocity Chiliad. And she is a performance artist who does these very, very dark performances about child abuse and child sexual abuse and incest and dark sexual practices. But there's something about her work that's also – it's. She actually does like hardcore performance where she cuts herself and it makes it look like she cuts herself like kiss style and has blood coming from her. And it's this very dark letting go of this dark past. But there's like this, she dresses like an angel. It's this really profound kind of dark theater. 
performance art. These two women both happened to be in New York on the same night. So one in one moment, I was rollerblading down the street with pigtails on and dark bread lips and tons of leather and latex to go see Velocity Chiliad with a white pure dress in my bag, at which point I rollerbladed up to Midtown, threw off the latex and the makeup and put on the white pure dress and kind of fell into Amma's arms. And for me, there's not a lot of separation between those two things. And it's about understanding that there's a there's a thread that connects these polarities that people would like it to be either or, which goes to the thread of polarity, to my connection to my roots, and to my liberation to being a free agent in the world. You know, do am I free in a, or am I connected to my past? And in as much as my past has formed me, I have to honor it because if I try to cut all ties to the past, I actually become more connected to it. And I see that happen with a lot of expats. It's like when they cut the ties, it's almost like they're more American than some of the Americans I know back in America. Interesting. Which is a very, yeah, it's a very, very interesting thing. And I think having my roots as a military child and traveling all over the world and seeing the difference between the people who lived in their native countries and us Americans who lived inside of their country. If you go on to an army base, the people on the army base are like waving flags stronger than anybody else. And it's just an interesting part of the polarity. So going to my dynamic about leaving the country and where that came to. So I was dancing for a number of years and I started to do this yoga thing. And inside of this yoga thing and meditation thing, I started to meet slightly different people again. So it's about my surroundings and the influences. Um, I'm not an island. You know, what I surround myself with will, will move me. And so the woman who got me kind of involved in yoga had become kind of a hippie vagabond traveler. She was also a dancer. And one of these women had bought land in Ecuador. And she invited me to come to a place in Ecuador to simply kind of chill out. And I had not left the country at that point in, you know, since my dad retired from the army, I don't think I'd left the country in about 10 years. And I was maybe even more, maybe 15. And I was living in New York and kind of in this stripper life. And by this time I was doing so much drugs and I was part of the, Part of the um, calling towards the more spiritual and light work was that I, the drugs had taken me to such a level that I was I was in dire, dire, dire condition, and um, started traveling to thinking that the traveling would help me get away from the drugs. Well, if you travel to Central America while you're trying to get away from cocaine, you can find it a very ineffective model, <laughs> an ineffective. So I would find myself in these places in Central America with this backpack on my back, looking for some kind of sanctuary in nature, some kind of, well, that was the whole, yeah, we didn't talk about the drug transition. Um, and uh, drugs actually made me able to be in nature again um, because doing psychedelics actually helped me reconnect with the earth. But I would go to these places, but cocaine would somehow lash onto me from the back. And I, so this profession I had allowed me to keep up my drug addiction because the drugs were in the field. I got arrested at some point. It's a long story after backpacking and hitchhiking all over the United States and traveling in Central America and finding myself back and forth between Central America and the States, trying to escape what I'd used to escape my mind. So I'd use drugs to help me escape my mind, but then the drugs took over and the drugs became more powerful than anything else in my life. Um, and uh, in that... Somehow the yoga gave me and the meditation gave me a direction in the right way, but eventually I put myself into an inpatient drug rehab after traveling a few times to Central America and failing to stay clean myself. 
truncated version of the story. Mm-hmm. And um, I was clean by myself for a couple of months before I went into drug rehab. But then I, I went back. I knew I just needed more time away from it with help. So I, I locked myself in a house full of a bunch of wickedly aggressive jailbird women, which I'd never been to jail, um, but found a re- some help to get into a rehab and spent three months inpatient. <laughs> Finally got asked to leave the drug rehab for walking around without my clothes on because it was considered a threat in a all-same-sex environment, which brought me back to hitchhiking. And I started hitchhiking through the United States, and then I went back to work as a dancer, clean and sober, because I needed to do that, because I never wanted it. I always felt like it was... People assumed that those two things were connected, and for me, they were very separate, and I needed to prove that to myself. And then finally, when I was dancing clean and sober for a while, I managed to save a bunch of money. And in saving that money, I started to travel again, this time clean. Clean-ish. I stayed off of everything for a year. I still participate in uh, a glass of wine now and again. And I, I engage with Mary Jane and psychedelics are still something that I consider healthy medicine. I don't, I'm not a purist um, in the sober sense. But I, uh, so then I started traveling. I, I, I ended up, well, I went, I, I tried to go back and do the nonprofit world and I ended up in Africa teaching, uh, technical assistance to, um, people that were involved in cutting pe- women's genitals. Um, it was like I was trying to do social work, going back into something more mainstream. I gave that a try. I lasted in that about a year. That wasn't it. Found myself back in Utah, um, being the construction manager and remodeler of a lesbian bar for a while, kind of in, inf- completely in a state of flux. I had to go like, imagine a metamorphosis of a butterfly. It starts as a a little worm and it has to eat everything in sight and consume everything, like all the drugs. But then it has to go into this cocoon where it turns into complete goo, right? So there were some years there where I was complete goo. I had no idea what this goo state would turn into. I mean, I was doing construction work. I was doing nonprofit work. I was being a bouncer in a lesbian bar. I was dating men. I was dating women. I was, I, I was just getting by with this money I'd saved up a little bit and backpacking for nothing and grifting on couches. <laughs> what the hell was next? And really feeling actually a lot of anxiety about what was next. And it was these times, I'm actually in another one of those phases right now, a little bit, but the anxiety of trusting life enough to go through the unknown periods without the security cord that I had cut all those years before. Coming back full circle to that realization again. Yeah, and what, and not even being aware of it, but just having so clearly cut the cord to security that the only option left was to be in this goo and trust, right? And I didn't know what was coming next. I wasn't going back to the corporate world. I was too getting to be too old to be a stripper anymore. Um, and I, being an intelligent, well-educated woman, I knew that wasn't my final dharma, right? But it was fun in my 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And so then, yes, somewhere along the line, I was in this goo phase. I was a bouncer at a very dikey bar in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. And uh, there was another woman that had kind of some hippie part to her that would come in. And she told me there were $600 tickets round trip to Thailand. I thought, that sounds fabulous. Let's go to Thailand. Yeah, because I don't know. 
this life isn't, you know, living in a suburban house, driving a Jeep with a bunch of lesbians. It's not going to be my life forever as much as I've enjoyed it. Something new. There's, there's something else that has to come out of this goo. And I, I, so I blew out my knee and I had knee surgery and had to postpone my trip and ended up going to Thailand with a metal knee brace that went from my thigh to my ankle with only 25 pounds in my backpack at doctor's orders looking for a flat beach so I could do physical therapy on the flat beach. For some reason, I could not find said flat beach. I got put to this place and that place, and I was on a bus a bit and just kind of frustrated. And then I I heard about some people playing drums. I was very into African drumming at the time. My, I still am in a way. Um and I heard, I, I ended up on this one beach that was perfectly flat, but the culture wasn't working for me. It was a bunch of drinking party people, which was fine, but I was kind of past that phase for all of, you know, for it to be a 247 thing. And so I went to this beach that was 20 minutes away by boat, which was not good for my knee, right? And it ended up having the squishiest sand in the world. I was there for a couple of hours, staying in a dormitory. And I met this woman at the bar and she's, I said, I'm, yeah, I'm just here for a couple of days. It's not the right place for me. And she looked at me and she said, you are going to be here so much longer than two days. I can feel it already in my bones. And I was like, what? she's like, this is one of those places that just takes certain people in. And I feel like it's going to take you in. And I was like, no, no, man, two days. I'm here for two days. I have to go take care of my knee. I must take care of my body. I stayed there for the next nine months. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it was like one of those just, you know, being in the goo until something hit. One going out and going out and seeing and walking out into the unknown. Yeah, that. walking out into the unknown. And that's what I mean about the goo of being in the mm-hmm. unknown, just trusting that a little bit. Like what, trusting that just like I had done when I quit the job, the straight job in a way, like what I call the straight job, it's like cutting, cutting loose enough to allow space for something else to come in Mm -hmm. cutting loose of something that was working in trust that something even better will come along Um, so i land on this beach at which point there's a shaman offering a shamanic healing training on this beach that i have no idea is like i just know they do a bit of yoga there but it turns out to be this sort of epic party meets spiritual retox detox mecca of human transformation Um, and I, this guy put up a sign that he was doing a shamanic healing course and I kind of needed to do something with my time, but I didn't feel like I had that much money. I was still in a very scarcity consciousness thinking back then that was in my no money phase, trying to get by with less money because money had taken me down the road of drugs and blah, blah, blah. And, um, I signed up for this course because he told me I would spend 80% of the time on my back, which seemed like a good idea for my body. Mm -hmm. Mm. And in a way, this somehow catapulted me into a new way of thinking. I got introduced to the work of Osho, who's a spiritual master, who kind of one of the crazy wisdom masters. I don't, I, I never took him on as a personal guru. Mm-hmm. I've not taken that path. However, his wisdom has been one of the most influential in my, in my work today and in my life today. I can say it that way with integrity. Um, so I took this course, I went through some deep kind of awareness and some deeper healing. Drug rehab had given me some healings from my childhood, which I had alcoholism in, in my family, and there was a lot of um, unrest there, there, so it was a lot to heal. Um, as I said, my father was in the Army, and in, he, was in, he saw a lot of action, so this brought up a lot of stuff, 
Yeah. Um, and so anyway, the shamanic course was another level in this healing. I had done some psychological stuff in the rehab and so I reached this next level. And somewhere, I don't even remember exactly the details, but I, I started going back to this place. I went back again to Utah. I picked up my job for a while. And then six months later, I was back on an airplane back to this place in Thailand. Um, after spending the first nine months there, then leaving for a while, then going, I guess I needed to make money or something, I, I think. And, um, it's funny how I think of it that way. Oh, I guess I needed to make money. There was a time that making money and being worried about making sure I could do that was the biggest priority. And now I see it's just something that I trust that when I need to do it, I'm just going to go do it. Um, so I went back there and again, as fortune, you know, more like fortune and fate, um, I, there was a woman offering belly dance workshops there. And this woman did belly dance teachings. And at the, she'd come from New York where she used to take her students to, um, a New York strip club to see New York strippers to see what had happened to belly dancing today. Well, she was no longer in New York teaching. She was in Thailand teaching and she heard a rumor that there was a retired New York stripper in the area. And she contacted me and she said, could I get you to come in and dance for my students as a performance to show them a bit more like how this belly dancing might look today? And I was like, hell yeah, that sounds great. As I mentioned before, I love this profession, you know, and I was like, sure, I'm going to go take my clothes off and be sexy for a bunch of women. That sounds fun. Let's do that. And, um, I did that, and by the end of this workshop, of this performance, they were pounding on the floor, screaming that they wanted me to teach them. It was like a, an outcry. And thus, um, a month later, I was teaching a self-development psycho-spiritual workshop on the metaphysical, metaphorical precept of being a naked goddess. I have no idea. Like, it just came like that. That's a myth. <laughs> just came like that. Somebody, I said, well, I would do a workshop if somebody else organized it because I'm a poor organizer. I don't know. I feel like I have something to offer, but I don't know what it is. And yeah, if you guys really want it that bad, I will show up and give it my all. And I tracked my years of being a dancer, I tracked all the sort of psychological boundaries that I had to face and all the sexual conditioning and all the stories with my family and all the fear between men and women and all of the thing about being metaphorically naked and being authentic and being my true self. And I just kind of threw this into a hodgepodge and created this three week experience for these women. That was kind of a in the moment theater of what it would be like if you wanted to suddenly become a stripper in the world. And, um, and in that process did a lot of sexual healing work with people and did a lot of um, personal, just general healing work with people because this metaphor of nudity is profound. You know, we all, most of us are running around the world 90% of the time wearing a pretty thick mask. Mm. And we're taught that that's healthy. And I get as a mature person who's very innocent and naive on some level, but I get the gift in being able to put on masks at will. But if the mask is the only thing that I know about myself, it's one thing to put on a robe for the day or put on a business suit for the day to play a character. It's another thing to believe I am the business suit or believe I am the robe. And so anyway, this, this metaphor of nudity in the strip, stripping context was really more about that. How do we unmask ourselves? And this was the sort of seed for the work I do today, which is this transformational tantric 
way process. And um, I did a lot more training after that, but I sort of got catapulted into this teacher role. What were you going to? No, yeah, I wanted to elaborate more on exactly what you do today, the name of the multiple mm -hmm. um, different processes right. that you have. Essentially, I'm under the impression you created this. Like, I this created this. It doesn't exist. I'm gonna, I can explain a bit. Yeah, Please do. Yeah. So I got catapulted into this teaching role doing something that I was taking from completely my heart and my spirit and my experience. And what I noticed when I did this work is I was taking people into extremely profound and deep places in their psyche. I felt because I'd had a very, very dark and hard past myself that I, I did feel safe to hold it. Um, I had my own child abuse stuff. I had alcoholism, as I said, in my family. And then I'd been through this stripper world where there's been all this addiction and there were murders. And there was, a, there was a lot of, there's a lot that I felt capable of holding. There wasn't a lot of stories that I didn't feel safe to hear or that I would react to. But what I did also become aware of is that there were probably some tools that would really be good to have along the way. So after doing a couple of these workshops, I got introduced to some different people that people recommended that did work that was similar or along the same lines. And I started to study again, not a traditional university study, but I started to look at where were these teachers. I traveled to France. I traveled to California because I was living in Thailand basically at the time. And, um, I traveled to France, I traveled to California, I traveled uh, to uh, India. Um, where else did I study? In Holland. I started just, I started with one training thinking I would rather than, I got pulled away from my own work, as it were, and studied with a teacher that's work was quite similar. However, then I tried to teach her work. And my work suffered for about two or three years. My work absolutely suffered. I was not meant to teach somebody else's work. And more and more training and more and more training, I started to come back to the fact that, okay, I could use these tools that I was learning, but add them to my own work. I didn't need to follow someone else's model. And that was key for me, and it's key for the way that I teach facilitators now. And that was also a part of this expatriating traveling thing and just following the flow of where the information was that I needed and who I needed to study with. And along this time, see, all of these transitions kind of overlap. Around this time, I, in my trainings, I started living in some more spiritual communities and ecological communities. And I'd, ever since I was a child, had this kind of desire to um, be ecologically minded. I may have picked that up from my dad. So as my teaching career was getting a little bit all twisted and muddled up because I was trying to do other people's work, I sort of put that aside for a while because I got inspired to start this spiritual community, ecological place, with a man that I was seeing at the time. And um, out of our love, we birthed a spiritual community in Nicaragua. We were in California asking where there was sacred, fertile land. And someone pointed us to this island, Ometepe, here in Nicaragua. And said, it's this island made of two volcanoes. One is full of fire. The other one is full of water. It's like, you want to do tantra work or sacred sexuality or man-woman work. It seems like the perfect place. And there's ancient petroglyphs everywhere. And because it's a volcanic island, it's very fertile and it's tropical. Go check out this island, said this man. At that point, I was teaching um, a small workshop as an assistant. And my ex-partner went to Costa Rica for the first time and landed in a community that... Um, it's called Pachamama. That's got a guru that does crazy wild side trance parties and silence retreats and has a really lovely mix of this retox detox that I talk about. 
And um, anyway, we almost moved there, but we asked a person where there was, we told, asked a person about the island of Ometepe. And this woman said, I know the most beautiful piece of land on that island. And within six months, I owned that piece of land. My ex-partner, again, this place where it's just like open to throw the question out to the universe, where am I meant to be and trusting it and following it. And how'd you get the money for the land? If you don't want me asking, how did I get the money for the land? Um, my ex-partner invested more than I did. I had a lot of, uh, I already had a following. So we exchanged sweat equity for a portion of it. Mm. He invested, I think 60%. I invested 40 and I got the other 10% bounced out in the sweat equity. 20,000 of $30,000 that I initially invested came from a crazy, wild, eccentric man who sponsors physically strong women who I had met when I was a dancer. He was sponsoring my trainings in all this psychological development. And uh, he was giving me money every month. And um, basically a year before he died, he gave me nearly $20,000. And then I sold my Jeep my D Jeep from my back in the lesbian truck days, the lesbian Jeep days. I sold my Jeep for 10 grand and that 30,000 I invested. The property has been valued at more than $500,000. Now the property and business, we initially invested about 60, 80,000, 80,000. That's incredible. It's incredible. No, it's pretty incredible. Please. Let's go into more detail on this. No, it's like the you've opened a whole way process okay. and like the, the eco. Okay, so let me get yeah, let me try to bridge that a little bit. You might have to edit to try to figure it all out because it's all complex. So it overweaves. So my ex partner and I started this community together, and this community was founded on some different ideals, and those ideals were the ideals we'd encountered in a community in Thailand where I had started my work, and this is a very sort of Advaitic satsang rooted kind of community where which is what. Please, not too much. Just give us a maybe. Okay, let me, I'm going to give you a bit. It's a, it was a community that was based on a very strong non-dual approach to spirituality. And in that non-dual approach, there's this kind of interesting dynamic. If the absolute and the divine are in pure perfection right now, then there is nothing to argue with and there's nothing wrong. If there's never anything wrong, or if it's all good, it's the all good, it's all good approach, then it's beautiful because we can surrender into the divine flow of things. And there's a great beauty in that. However, what I noticed also in that is there's also a really strong capacity to fall into hedonistic, irresponsible ways of living. In that, if it's all good, does it matter if I drive my Prada or my Lexus or drive, use plastic water bottles all the time? Does it matter? That there is war in the world. Yes, if the divine plan is to have that war so we can learn our lessons, great. So let it all be. I'm just going to keep living my life. And my highest purpose is to be the most happy person I could be. If happiness is understood as true contentment and service, great. But oftentimes I see that that spiritual path is used as an excuse to be irresponsible. And yet at the same time, I want to be in that absolute faith and trust with God, God, divine, blah, 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 call it whatever you want, existential isness. Um, and then there was this other part of me that had been uh, experiencing, it was pre-2012, and there was a lot of like survivalist, fear-based 
Um, we have to do permaculture projects because we have to save the planet and we need to, you know, there's, there's desire to serve the earth, but from this complete container of fear, absolute fear. And like, that was not much, that didn't feel any more comfortable than this place of, oh, there's nothing to fear. Oh, everything is fear. There's nothing to fear. <laughs> and so one of the biggest underpinning inspirations for Inanita, which is the spiritual community that I founded, was to integrate this the spirit of meditation and celebration and sort of uh, call it higher chakra. I don't want to use that language. To integrate a, a container where there was a, med- a sense of meditation and celebration and spiritual um, recognition of oneness with this idea that not out of fear, but out of service, it feels fucking really good to be a good person and do good things. Not because I'm afraid the world is going to end, but to really serve the planet and be ecological because it just feels good. Feels like the right, quote unquote, you know, not to use right and wrong, but it just feels like a damn good thing to do rather than do it out of fear. And so the founda- foundation of the community was to try to Find a way to live close to the earth, live in harmony with nature, live in harmony with our true self, bring community together, step away from the power structures that be. We were very much outside of the law at that time. Now we have to integrate into the regular world. And of course, as everything in life is, my ideals, of course, have been shattered right, left, and center in this desire to build spiritual community. Um, and I've learned a lot and I, I'm realizing more and more as I get older that a lot of the models that exist today actually have a lot of wisdom in them. It's just the underpinning essence that they're being brought to you from that's less um, in a spiritual community. You might want to share housing and share income as a way to do things. Well, actually a homeowner's association, which is a regular world uh, legal structure does look at doing that. And, and it, so now I'm getting closer to where it's, again, this, as I talked about before, there are these polarities between dark and light or between separation and togetherness or between the regular world and the alternative world. And really, all, any one of these polarities is just one long thread. And we're trying to dance along this thread so we can weave together the tapestry of life. But when we set, when we try to make them as opposed to each other, we actually create more conflict. When we see, and so Inanita has been about trying to weave threads and what would colors. I experience if I came to your community and I, I went to one of your workshops? What? Okay, well, there's two different experiences. There's the, the workshop were founded, and let me go back just a step before I answer that. So we, so I, we founded this community, and then after we got the groundwork going, then my time was free again to start focusing on my teachings and the tantric way process as a process was birthed at Inanita. Because the previous work I'd been doing had just been like tasting my teaching skills and trying to explore different territories. And this process began after I started the spiritual community. And then I'll tell more about that. If you were to come to Inanita, you would be living very, very close to nature, using compost toilets, eating 98% of the food you would eat would come from the island. There's, there's a prohibition against imported foods. You can have personal items. You would wake up every morning if you wanted to. You wouldn't be required to. You'd wake up at six o'clock and participate in a transformational active meditation that might be 
from the School of Osho. It might be a holotropic breathwork session. Always active meditation, not a silent seated meditation. Comes from the theory that as modern active people, what takes us into states of meditation more rapidly is different than ancient people who used to have a different mindset and neurology. Um, then you would have some kind of healthy breakfast. You might participate in helping to make the breakfast. You'd have to participate. Even if you visit, you have to participate a couple times a week in helping things happen. If you volunteer, you then work in the morning doing things like natural building and organic gardening and cleaning spaces and making cacao for weekly cacao parties and so morning meditation, there's yoga a couple times a day that you have an option to participate in. You can learn about gardening. You can learn about natural building. You can practice those things. Um, once a week, we have what we call the transparency circle. Transparency circle is a space where the entire community is uh, required to participate. And you share from a place that's deeper than the layer of the mask. So everybody that feels called to on that day will step into the center of the circle and speak a bit their truth and be available for feedback. So it's a way that the community, it's a, it's an anchoring tool to make it feel like community rather than just like some random hostel. Then once a week, there's a cacao ceremony, which can involve everything from a very sacred shamanic drumming experience to a wide, wild psychedelic, uh, psytrance thing to a Greek archetypal pantheon party to it's, uh, it's a co-creative space. So what happens in those ceremonies is very, 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 very much about who's there um, and what they're bringing to the table. There's opportunities to try out offering your own workshops. That was something I struggled to find when I was getting into my teaching role and one of the reasons I created the place. So I like to keep it open for new burgeoning people to start offering new things and trying their, trying their grit at different stuff that they want to put together to be creative so that they don't have to teach other people's work. Um, what else might happen there? You might take a permaculture design course. You might take a, um, we have retreats basically. So there's a permaculture design course. We have acro yoga. We have five rhythms workshops. And then we offer my workshops, which are the tantric way process, the tantric opening and the facilitator skills training that I offer, which is about how to kind of do what I do, but not really. And if you were to join, let's say the tantric way process, which is a three week intensive process. Um, it's three weeks, 18 people together going through the deepest, deepest, deepest parts of their body, mind, and spirit. And it's a transformational process that looks to make you more aware of yourself, to expose what you want to hide, and to step through to the next, have an experience of stepping through to the next level of who you might want to be. Um, the first week's focus is called Self and Source. And in self and source, we look to the source. So connection to your own body, connection to your roots, your family. Uh, what What is the conditioning that you picked up as a child? Deconditioning a lot of childhood patterns, understanding why the ego is the way it is, and looking at what were some of the childhood developmental things that constructed your ego so you can know it better. I don't believe in killing the ego. I much like the meditators talk about making your mind um, a servant. I like to see the ego made into a servant, not a master, but not to be killed. If you kill the ego, you end up, you know, in the loony bit. So we don't want to do that. Uh, the second week is called Lover and Beloved. And as an extension of that relationship to your source, which is the place where you were literally conceived through a sexual act, 
lover and lo- lover and beloved is about connecting with another person and what are the ways that we can more consciously have romantic sexual connections what are your codependency patterns what have you learned about your ego that you now bring into relationship and how does that manifest there what are healthy communication strategies what kind of sexual conditioning are you carrying how can we heal some of the sexual wounds of trauma and violation and perpetration and rape and these kinds of things how do we uh we look at you know performance anxieties we look at the fear of being vulnerable and connecting and the loss of heartbreak and the story of the heart and the sex together and the story of being a man or a woman um being straight or gay uh, these kinds of stories come up in week 2 looking at my favorite game that we play is though about codependency patterns and the way we look for love i love that it's a it's a game to help us increase our awareness And then the last week, and I think this is why I had to start the community before this process could be born, is called community and collective consciousness. And here we go into our the roots of our relationships to our peers and our authorities, how we co-create with others, not just in a relationship with one other, but how are we together in the community? What is our role? Kind of like in the sense of an American Indian vision quest that we need to know what our dharma is or our purpose and how do we stay in truth to that and how do we connect with other people just to try to create one unified breath with a large group of people is difficult. What we investigate what keeps us small in groups. Why do we need to dominate in groups? Why do, what is our ego pattern there? What are some of the physical ways we can be together? um to have cuddle puddles or to to be playful on the dance floor together and how does that what is what insecurities working a lot with insecurity and stepping into our power in that week of maturing of what what's my dharma what's my role what what is this collective consciousness we work a lot of the healing work also in that week has to do with had been blessed recently to work with some war veterans and um healing the wounds of war on a personal level it seems to have its ripples into the collective level loving to work energies like hitler and israel and palestine lately in that week and it's fucking profound to be able to take thing you know thing on week 1 and from the personal level and then look at its connection to the collective and then deepen in that so it's a it's an interesting long intensive ride of empowerment through this sort of journey from self through other to the community is basically what it is that sounds amazing yes it's it's a pretty epic wonderful i have to i feel honored mm-hmm. actually to teach it i talk about it with my students it's it's my meditation it's again one of those places like when i was a dancer where i actually get to be happy working i don't do it i recently last year i lost 20 grand $20,000 which is a lot of money for me and i lost it and somebody said oh my god all that work you did with all those trainings and I, it hadn't even crossed my mind that they were connected and having that sense that i do what i do not for the money and letting money come as a side product of it is such an honor and i think only with that cutting that cord to security that we were talking about at the very beginning does that ever become possible mm-hmm. and so anyway i'm honored to be like to hold space for and to 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 be able to cultivate the trust that's necessary to allow a group of people to go that deep into themselves so that they can change their lives and also really blessed to see the people come through the course and then start great businesses and start new communities and just watching people flower afterward I'm fucking totally humbled and honored i mean it feels it's a bit arrogant to say that on one level but i don't say it from that place i just it's really like 
or maybe I do say it from that place, but as much as I can be arrogant about it, I can be completely humble about it. Or it's like this no pride, no shame. I mean, it doesn't always go perfect either, but yeah, just Beautiful. delighted. Can I ask, like, if I wanted to come participate for that three mm-hmm. weeks, what was that? What would that cost somebody coming in to participate? It depends on where you do the course. I offer it right now in two places, and I'm looking to offer it in a third place. If you were to come and take that course in Guatemala with me at a yoga ashram, there, there the cost is around for private, for dormitory accommodation, it's around sixteen hundred dollars for all three weeks, food and everything included, which is completely ridiculously affordable compared to other people that do my work, mm-hmm. I must say. And with private accommodation, around nineteen hundred. If you came to Nicaragua to do it, it would cost you. About 1900 as well for, uh, for camping. And that's um, all inclusive. That's all inclusive at both locations. Both of them are really quite rustic ecological environments. I have a commitment to work in ecological environments because I think there's an echo psychology that's playing out there. But I am looking at branching out into doing it into a place in Costa Rica where it would be more expensive and more comfortable. I notice people, I'm 46, and I notice people my age or with who are coming from different walks of life might be more inclined to take the leap if they didn't have to also deal with a lifestyle that they were really uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. And so looking at different venues where it might be more like 2500 to $3,000 for the three weeks. Mm-hmm. Now, the community on Ometepe, is that a permanent community that people live year-round? Nobody lives there year-round anymore because the man that I founded it with and I have divorced. So he and I are right now going through a separation and we actually split our time six months each there. And it seems that there are two teams evolving around the two of us. I really believe that's a temporary thing that's happening through the separation. There are other spiritual communities that are 60 years standing that have been through worse. Um, there have been times where people have lived there for three or four years um, and it's still thriving. It just doesn't have the same quite grounded team that it used to because mommy and daddy got divorced. Mm-hmm. So the kids are having a hard time with that, <laughs> uh, basically. Um, I trust eventually it will find its way back to wholeness. But again, that's part of this dance, again, of trusting. I was devastated at the separation and devastated that people weren't living there all year round. It was painful for me. Mm-hmm. And like to the point of painful for two years of like crying, mm-hmm. you know, and like really not... And I think that's one of the key points, too, for me in terms of the whole life trajectory towards freedom is being willing to move through the uncomfortable places without reaching for the safety net. That, I think, is really, really key. Being willing to go through maybe to go through the suffering of being a human while maintaining the awareness that on an absolute level, everything is fine. But nonetheless, I am unhappy. My unhappiness is part of the imperfection, not that my unhappiness needs to change. Because if I try to force my unhappiness to change, it tends not to go well. That's what I've noticed. It's like diving into the bardos, the the dark spaces, the dark nights of the soul, and really being willing to sit in them, sit in the goo. I talked about the goo before, you know, like... Not the, I think our society is designed to want us to be happy right away. You have to, you're going to go buy this and this is going to fix everything, or you're going to come and do my training and it's going to fix everything forever. One of the things I guarantee to people if they do my training is that they're not going to come out and be fixed for the rest of their life. 
They're going to have tools for how to meet the challenges of the rest of their life. But I'm not selling any snake oil to people. Life is a journey. And we go through these phases that are uncomfortable. And we ha- if we have tools to deal with that, we're equipped. But if we just reach for a quick fix, we're going to end up drug addicts and shopping addicts and people driving safe cars with nice mortgages. So that we're sure that there's going to be a casket there somewhere. <laughs> if, if somebody wanted to come participate in one mm-hmm. of your your retreats are you calling yep. retreats or yeah i call them like what do i call them i don't i hate to use that mainstream language if somebody wanted to participate in one of my transformational workshops yeah. retreats sure. yeah what do you want to know where can they find you uh to find out more about my transformational retreats you would go to gaiagasm.com which is G-A-I-A-G-A-S-M.com. Or you would go to Gaia-MA.com, Gaia-MA. Um, that would be the best place to get all the information you need. You've had so many wise quotes and just touched upon so many things that I think people can take and use in their mm. next step in life. Is there a, something you want to summarize with? I would say if you do anything... Remember to listen to the quietest, most persistent voice in your head that tells you to leap. I don't know where it's telling you to leap towards, but there's always that voice. We all have one, one quiet voice that we we listen to for a minute and then we put it aside. We hesitate. Don't hesitate. Don't plan. Do beautifully said. Thank you for joining me. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that Maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.